But the question is, what does it mean? Love will cover a multitude of sin. Does it mean will cover over? Or will it be a cover up? It will cover up. Does it mean will cover for? Yes. When you travel on roads that have many potholes, you call for help and they cover multitude of sins. Okay, so love will cover in the defects. Oh, I like this. I like that very much. Um, uh, in fact, that's very good. I'm going I'm I'm to use that in the future. Thank you. I like that. Okay. So it doesn't mean then, it does not mean to hide. Does it mean to erase from memory? To purge from the court documents in heaven? To not hold accountable? Does it mean to remit the punishment? Does it mean to legally pardon? I'm, I'm saying these things because I've heard that this type of thing, the love covers a multitude of sins, was presented in many of these different ways like this. Yes? Well, if love is God, and we have to have God's character, it would seem to me that love would be God's character, which covers a multitude of sins. So if we have God's character, we've covered a multitude of sins. Oh, I like where you're going with this. So, let, so let's step back one step and go, what is sin? How do you define it? Or if you want to put it another way, what's the problem that sin causes that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? What is sin? How do you define it? Separation from God. Okay. Defects of character. Okay. Defects of character as defined by what might we say God's law. God's law is a reflection of his character. So we're deviant from his perfection of love and righteousness. And, and those deviations in us separate us from God. So everything you're saying is right. Is it? Are we defining it more clearly? So, so the root, though, if we could actually put names to the root elements of sin, what are the root elements of sin? What would you call the root elements? Fear and selfishness. Okay, fear, selfishness, absolutely, which is the opposite of love. And the primary emotion that drives us to be self-referenced is fear. As soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid and would become fearful. We look to protect self. We're not other-centered. So that's the prime emotion. And there's one element, though, that led them to, to that condition. Deception. Deception. Lies. Right? And so the truth, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. And truth and love defeat lies and selfishness, right? Isn't that right? Okay, so, so we're starting to see this. I really want to disabuse us of this idea that, um, uh, that love covers a multitude of sins from the idea that love covers over or erases memory or erases record books or diminishes our awareness of sin because that's what's often taught. In fact, within the Adventist circles, with the sanctuary teaching, it's often taught that when you confess your sins, they go beforehand to judgment, they're erased from the record books, when you go to heaven, no one will know anything we've done, you've heard this kind of stuff. But let me ask you, when Jesus, did Jesus love his persecutors? Yes. Did he love those who were nailing him on the cross? And do we see that love evidenced in his actions toward them? Did his love, in the face of their selfishness, their evil, make it harder to see their evil and selfishness? Or did his love make their evil and selfishness stand out even more clearly? Yes. It exposed it, didn't it? It didn't cover it over. It didn't eliminate it. It made it more plain to see. How about when Stephen was being stoned? Did he respond in, with love and grace to those abusing him? Did his actions of love, love in action right there, make the evil and selfishness in his killers harder to see, or did it make you see more clearly what was wrong? So this idea that love covers over and makes it harder to see sin is a lie. doesn't do that. Love stands in contrast. When you see the beauty of God's true character, things that deviate from it become more plain. That makes sense? Okay. And so Jesus himself said these words, Luke 8, 17. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Now, I know a lot of Adventists that are very discouraged by that passage because their whole security in the future is based on the idea that when we get to heaven, no one will know the sins they've committed. That's their security. 
And and there are some that actually actively write and oppose our class for this very reason, because, because because they teach that the sanctuary message is about erasing the records of the righteous. And because we teach it's about erasing sinfulness out of character. But history, historical facts don't change. Give you a a simple example. A lot of times they'll say, when we accept Jesus, his life stands for our life. Our record of our sins are erased and the righteousness of Christ is put in in the record books of heaven. And when the father looks there, he gets the life of Jesus rather than the life of us to look at and judge, right? And I said, if that's true, then when we get to heaven, is, is this going to be your memory experience? You remember being born in Bethlehem and laying in a manger, and at age 12, your parents left you at the temple, and, and for three days, you were, were a little lost from your parents, and, and then you walked on water, and you, and you, and you performed uh, the, the raising of Lazarus, and then you were crucified. Is this going to be your memories? That's what some are teaching, that the life of Jesus becomes our historical life. It's not true. Your historical life remains your historical life. What you get is the character of Jesus. You get a new heart and right spirit, new motives. But you don't get a new history. And in fact, doesn't the Bible teach that in heaven that we sing the song of our experience? How can you sing the song of your experience if your experience has been erased? Yes. It also glorify God because we're being watched and... Those who are watching us can see that Christ is working in our lives. And it gives God glory to see our character that's here come up here. Yes. Right. And so think about you have a child dying of metastatic cancer. And no doctors made to cure them. And let's say we lived in the time of Jesus. And Jesus touches your child and cures the cancer. How much appreciation do you have for Jesus? How about tomorrow there's no memory of their sickness? And you don't remember that he cured them. You just have a healthy child. Does your appreciation for Jesus diminish now because you don't have any memory? This is why Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, love much. Those who teach us memory erasure thing are undermining our capacity and appreciation for all that God has done. And our, and our love for him will be compromised with that. It's not true. So what does it mean then, a love that love covers a multitude of sins. Here's from the remedy, this verse from the remedy. Above everything, love each other completely because love destroys sinfulness. Isn't that what love does? When love comes into the heart, it destroys the fear and selfishness and sinfulness that was previously there. When God, what's the new covenant? God writes his laws on our hearts and minds. And what's actually happening? Isn't the law that gets written on the heart and mind the law of love? The design protocol of God's own nature and character. And when this happens, what happens to the previous motives of selfishness that we had before the law of love was written in? What happens to those motives? Aren't they being purged, erased, destroyed out of the character of the one who has the law of love written in? As the spirit dwelling within. So sinfulness in the soul is being removed and righteousness in the soul is being established. That's what I think it means that love covers a multitude of sins. It takes and paves over the defects by putting in the perfection of Christ, not in a book, in a historical account, but in the actual character of the living being. So here's a couple of quotes and see what you think about them. Do you agree or disagree with these? First one's out of a book called Steps to Christ, page 60. The law of God is an expression of his very nature. It is an embodiment of the great principle of love. No, principle of love. Principle, or that was rules and checklists or design protocols. The principle of love. And hence, it is the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. If our hearts are renewed in the likeness of God, if the divine love is implanted in the soul, will not the law of God be carried out in the life? When the principle of love is implanted in the heart... When man is renewed after the image of him that created him, the new covenant promise is fulfilled. I will write, put my laws in their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. What is it that fulfills it? The principles of love implanted in the heart. This is it. And if the law is written in the heart, will it not shape the life? Obedience, the service and allegiance of love, is the true sign of discipleship. What does it mean to be obedient? 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It is a heart that loves. And then this one is out of Signs of the Times, June 28, 1905. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, you know that's a quotation from John the Baptist when Jesus was coming to him. This is a quotation from John the Baptist. Notice what John the Baptist says the Lamb of God is to do. The Lamb of God is to do what? Take away the or take away the punishment for sin. What's he taking away? Do you know it's commonly taught in Christianity? He came to take our punishment for sin. No, he came to take away sin. And from where do you think he is taking sin away? From historical accounts? From record books? From buildings in heaven where sin has been piling up and accumulating? Or is he taking sin away from the characters, hearts, minds of his people? By beholding him, we may be changed into his image. Those are the very next words in the quote. So what's happening here, taking away sin, Next, this author says, by beholding him, we are changed into his image. So what's happening? It's the transformation of the living being. The promise has been made, I will put my laws in their hearts and their minds, I will write them. Through disobedience, man forfeited holiness, accepting in its place the principles of unrighteousness. Pause. In its place. Where? Where? Where is the place from which the principles of holiness were lost and unrighteousness was put? Where is that place? In the, notice again where the action point is. How much of your religious upbringing have you always thought the problem is in my heart and mind versus the problem is with what I do and the record books in the accounting system in heaven? Is there a metaphor you can think of that's commonly used that metaphorically teaches about God's plan to cleanse the heart and mind of his people from selfishness and sin and restore his perfection, his law, the law of life back in? Is there a metaphor commonly taught? Anybody know one? The sanctuary. The entire teaching of the sanctuary is about putting the law in the old system. Where did you find the law? In the ark, in the most holy place. In the new system, we just read that from Hebrews, I will put my law. In the old system, the blood of the sacrifice was taken throughout the system, various uh, uh, places cleansing. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my... Where's he putting the blood? In us. Okay. The metaphor of the old sanctuary system is metaphorically, symbolically teaching the plan to remove fear, selfishness, and... and uh, uh, lies and distortions from our thinking, from our minds, and restoring truth and righteousness and God's design of love back in. That's the plan. So you say that our mind is the holy place and our heart is the most holy place? Now, I, we'll have to think about that, how, how you apply that. So, you know, that's actually been applied in that way, that, but I don't actually apply it that way. I look at it more corporately. Like the holy place, if we look at the symbols of the holy place, what do we find in the holy place? Now, in fact, I'm not going to get off on this because I've done this before. And that's an entire hour lecture. So um, in my next book coming out in, in September, there's a whole chapter on the symbols of the sanctuary. It's going to be in that, decoding it. Yes? Could it be that Jesus came to die, not just to give us a new creation of our heart, but also to forgive our past? Because there are those verses that tell about the remission of sin. And also, like in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He came in all in Christ, all things are made new, not counting men's sins against them. Right. So you say, to, came to forgive. So which came first? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Their hearts, their attitudes, um, forgiving sinners... Or the death of Christ, which then enabled God and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to forgive sinners. Well, it's referring to the death of Christ in these couple of verses. Yes, but you brought up the question of forgiveness. So think through the issue of forgiveness. Which came first, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
forgiving from their heart and then moving through their resources and agencies to achieve what was necessary to save sinners or God sent Christ to die so that God would be able, enabled, motivated, moved (laughs) to forgive. So what came first? Forgiveness and and then followed by Christ's self-sacrifice or Christ's self-sacrifice brought God to the point he could forgive? You see, it's an important thing and distinction to make because the common teaching is Christ's death was necessary for God to forgive. Christ's death was evidence to forgive. So back to the question. When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, when Adam and Eve rebels in Eden, did God get changed? No. Did God's law get changed? No. Did mankind get changed? Yes. So however you describe the work of Jesus, was it necessary to do something to fix God? He hadn't been changed. To fix God's law, it hadn't been changed. Where's the defect now? In the heart, mind, character of humankind. So, I think part of it is to communicate to us, and it says in Scripture, that God is forgiving, and that we can trust and have confidence He has forgiven, because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid. Who were they afraid of? Did they need to be afraid of God? Where did that fear from God come from? Was it come because he's angry, because he's mad, because he's thundering, because he's threatening? Where's this fear coming from? The lies about God that they already believe now in their own guilty consciences and the fact that they're condemning themselves and themselves and they feel so bad about themselves and they feel so horrible that nobody could like them because of what they've done and they feel like they deserve to be punished and so God is so righteous, he should punish them too. And so they're projecting all their own guilt and shame back on God and believing God's going to do this to them. And so God says, Adam, who told you you were naked? Think this through. Who's in the garden? How many people were around to tell him? Okay? So the implication in the question, God, who told you you were naked? What's implied in the question? If God's asking who told you, it's also a statement, I didn't point this out. You did not hear this from me. I'm not the one pointing out your defect. Adam, that's coming from your own guilty conscience. You've changed yourself, Adam. And so this is what sin does. It causes internal guilt, internal shame, fear that no one could like us, so we end up running from God who is interested in saving us. So the issue of forgiveness, God is always for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will not along with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? He is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. And so we find in Romans 8... Earlier in the chapter, the Holy Spirit intercedes, the Father's interceding, and the Son is interceding. There's a united Godhead interceding with the principalities, powers of darkness, and the destructiveness of sinfulness in us to destroy sinfulness and heal and save us. So the idea of forgiveness, absolutely something we need to know, but it was already there, extended from God, and Christ's sacrifice reveals and proves that we're forgiven so that we'll be convinced. Does that make sense? You mentioned Adam was naked. Yes. Adam did an action that separated him from God. So that's outside of guilt. That's It's the fact that something happened. Yes, Adam's condition changed. His mind changed. His character changed. His internal motives changed. He experienced things he'd never experienced because of his choice to believe a lie. Lies believed break the circle of love and trust. Mm-hmm. Broken love and trust result in fear and selfishness. So he has fear and self-centeredness in his heart that was never there before. Okay, so his condition is now deviant from God's design based on the choice that he made. And that's why he runs and hides. Not because God is now mad, not because God is angry, not because God in his righteous holiness has to, by justice, seek to punish those who've broken his rules. That's all lie. That's fabrication. Okay? So going on with the quote, But by breaking the yoke that Satan had fastened upon him, upon humankind, and taking, and the yoke, notice the yoke that Satan fastened upon us. What's that yoke? It's the yoke of guilt, fear, selfishness. This is the yoke that we we struggle under. And taking the yoke of Christ, learning of him, his meekness and loneliness, man is created anew. Christ has promised to write in the heart of every repentant sinner his law, which is holy, just, and good. He promises to renovate the soul. Through the medium of truth. Now notice these words. He diffuses his own life through the entire being. 
diffuses his whole own life. What does that mean? Diffuses. What does it mean to diffuse something? D-I-F-F-U-S-E-S. What does it mean? It kind of permeates. Yes. If we were to diffuse a, 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 a perfume into this room, what would we do with that? You see? He diffuses his life through the entire being. Thus, the sinner is born again. And henceforth, in a life of loving service, he is to work out the grand ennobling principles that he can take with him into the heavenly courts. There is, a, there is placed upon him a new mold of character. This is the plan of salvation, the plan of healing, the plan of renewal, the plan of regeneration, removing the heart of stone, putting in the heart of flesh, circumcising the heart with the Holy Spirit, having the mind of Christ, dying to the old man, rising to the new man. All the metaphors are teaching an actual, literal transformation of the inner person. And then since we're talking about this covering over, I I couldn't let this passage out of Christ's object lesson slip. 3.11. Only the covering which Christ himself has provided can make us meet to appear in God's presence. This covering, the robe of his righteousness, Christ will put on every repenting, believing soul. This robe woven in the loom of heaven has not one thread of human devising. Christ in his humanity wrought out a perfect character. And this character he offers to impart to us. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. What's it mean? There's no covering over. There's a filling in (laughs) with the righteousness of Christ that we are reborn and renewed so that Christ lives in us. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We actually are regenerated with new motives to love God and others more than self. This is what it means to cover a multitude of sins. Peter, in the first paragraph, it says, Peter's letter also tackles head-on some of the difficult social questions of his time. For instance, how should Christians live with an an oppressive and corrupt government? Glad we don't have questions like that today to answer. And that's the question. How should Christians live? Should we identify ourselves, should we identify ourselves with our human governments? Should our identities, our sense of self, be incorporated, and should we incorporate into our sense of self an identity with a government? I'm an American. Proud to be an American. You know, should, should, should we do that? Or, as I heard sure, or does the Bible say our citizenship is in heaven? Should we identify our, our citizenship? We should be good citizens abiding by the laws of the land and not causing disruption and being unruly. But should our identity be identified with governments that the Bible describes as beastly? These are beasts. They shred and tear. Should we identify with something that's beastly or should we identify with the lamb who, who takes away the sins of the world? Where's our identity caught up? Are we citizens of heaven? Is there a difference between a law-abiding, tax-paying good neighbor citizen and identifying your sense of self with your nationality? Are those different? Can you be a law-abiding, tax-paying, good citizen that obeys the laws of the land, but your identity is somewhere? I'll give you an example. When we travel outside the U.S. and we travel outside the U.S. fairly regularly, we're going to be heading out again here soon. And when we're in another country, we are vigilant to be aware of their laws. We want to abide by their laws. We don't want to get in legal trouble. We don't want to have any confrontation with their ruling authorities. But I promise you, when I'm visiting another country, I don't identify myself as German or Australian or any other country. That's not who I am. My identity is separate from that. Should we do that with our native countries as well? That we're law-abiding, never want to get in trouble, always want to be good citizens, but we identify ourselves with Christ. We're Christian. Sunday's lesson, talking about the relationship between church and state, and it uh, points out that the Bible writers encourage the Christians to obey the laws of the human governments, but the second paragraph states, in some cases, it's pretty obvious, Revelation 13 talks about a time when obeying political powers would mean disobeying God. In such cases, our choice is clear. Hmm. They're saying that when we find ourselves in situations in which God's law is different from man's law, that our responsibility is to follow God's law. Everybody agree with that principle? 
And is it clear? Or in fact, is it very muddy and very gray? If you're not sure, you know I've got some examples to (laughs) challenge you with. And I'm going to say, when it comes to obeying the laws of the land and, and, and comporting those with your understanding of God's requirements for our life, is this an area that's black and white, or is it an area where maybe Romans 14 comes into play, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind? So here's an example. Does God give the command, thou shalt not kill? Yes or no? Yes. What about a police officer carrying a weapon, a gun, that might be used and could be used to kill? Should he carry the gun? And if he finds himself in a situation, should he kill or should he not kill? In Romans, the government is there to kill those who are offended. So, yes, that's the government. Is he speaking about God's government? He's speaking about earthly governments. He's speaking about earthly governments. And so, is he talking about that's how Christians should behave, or he's making a distinction between Christians and earthly governments? We're part of the government. So, a soldier in war. Desmond Doss took a position, a particular stand, that a soldier in war should not kill, that God's law supersedes man's law. Do all Christians come to the same conclusion Desmond Doss came to? Hmm. What about participating in the execution of criminals? The American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, have a stand, an ethical stand, that it is unethical for doctors to participate in the execution of criminals. You can actually um, have ethical action taken against your license if you participate in the execution of criminals. Do you think that psychiatrists have a higher ethical standard than Christians? Well, you guys are really quiet today. Hmm. Should be the What about euthanasia? Somebody dying of a terminal condition. How about you're in the emergency room? I, I tell you a true case that I had when I was a third-year medical student. I lived in. I went to med school in Memphis, and at that time, the trauma center in Memphis was the number one trauma center in the country. More traumas came into that center with knife, gunfights, and so forth than any other trauma center. Now, other cities had more trauma, but they had multiple trauma centers to divide up the trauma. So we actually had more numbers as a hospital, not necessarily as a city. Okay, one individual came in had been shot with a semi-automatic or automatic weapon, and he had four bullet holes across his entry and exit wounds across his head. Boom, 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 four. And four exit wounds with brains oozing out both sides. He was alive when he came into the emergency room. Do you you think there's any chance he's going to do well? (laughs) Any chance with any modern intervention at all he's going to do well? There's zero chance. Zero. They, they call the neurosurgeon in, and the neurosurgeon comes in and looks at it and goes, why did you call me? There's nothing I can do here. Nothing. Somebody dying of cancer, terrible metastatic into the bones, agonizing, screaming in pain. Should that person have the right to end their own life, or should we force them, maybe even put them on a ventilator, keep them alive weeks and weeks longer, because we don't want to end life? Thou shalt not kill. How about abortion? Many Christians believe abortion is murder. Do you as a Christian recognize that there can be some Christians who love God, accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and a saving relationship, who don't believe abortion is murder? Can that be true? Can you respect their freedom to think it differently and still be a good Christian, or must we condemn them as being heretics and or even seek the, the power of the state to enforce our view of how everybody else should conform to our belief on that. How do we relate as Christians to the government? Is it black and white? It's very clear, it said in the lesson. It's very clear. When God gives a command, it's very clear how we should come down on these things. Is, no is it clear or as I muddied the water for you? Muddy. What about marriage? God designed in Eden one man and one woman. That's his design. Everybody agree? His design in Eden? What about polygamy? Do we find in the Bible anywhere that God actually ordered them to stop polygamy? Yeah. In the instructions to the first king, Samuel read that you will not multiply wives. Okay, not multiply wives. So whatever you have, you're stuck with. I hope so. <laughs> what of modern societies? 
What about same-sex marriages? Should we obey the laws of the land and leave our people free in the country to marry people of the same sex? Or recognizing God's original design, should we seek to change the laws to stop people from having same-sex marriages? Should we obstruct them as Christians, or should we love all people equally and leave people free as adults to just make that decision for themselves? People are marrying themselves now. What about slavery? Is God's design that we have slaves, or is God's design for human freedom and liberty? What's God's principle? Did Bible writers advise that slaves should leave their masters? Hmm. In the Old Testament, God built into the Hebrew system a legal freeing of the slaves every 49 years. Am I right about that? Yes. The slaves would be set free every Jubilee year. Every 49 years, they would be set free. Think this through with me, guys. Then what does that mean about God's attitude towards slavery? Why didn't he just, when he encoded it into their system of jurisprudence, why didn't he just outlaw slavery? Notice, he didn't outlaw slavery. He legalized it. He just put term limits on it. Did you ever think that through? God legalized and term limited slavery. This is very strange. He didn't want them to have a king. They were determined to have one. So once they chose the king, God worked with them. Have you, in, in scripture, do you find anywhere where God made slavery illegal? No. Paul sent a slave back to his master. Paul sent slaves back to their master. Let's look at Friday's lesson. This is a quotation from Testimonies to the Church, Volume 1, page 201 and 202. And we'll read the, uh, the quotation here. When the laws of men conflict with the word and law of God, we are to obey the latter, whatever the consequences may be. The law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, the law of our land requiring us to deliver a slave to his master, we are not to obey. And we must abide the consequences of violating this law. The slave is not the property of any man. God is the rightful master, and man has no right to take God's workmanship into his hands and claim him as his own. Hmm. Did the Bible writers take the same position as Ellen White on slaves that run away? Yes or no? No. Wow, does that mean Ellen White supersedes the Bible? Which is the greater light? Which is the lesser light? Are you getting uncomfortable yet, anybody? But there's a progress of light. Light isn't always the same. The light that's shown gives it to us as we mature. So the way God handled Israel was a bunch of slaves. So you're starting to answer my next question. Why was there a difference between, why is there a difference between what Ellen White's writing and what the Bible's writing? One answer is light is progressing. Truth is unfolding. Did you want to add to that? Well, that's the way God had to handle the Israelites. They were slaves. He had to handle them as children, uh, fear-based children. And so he thundered and so on. But that's not really the way he wanted to deal with them. He just had to take them from where they were and progress them along as fast as they could do so. So first, first, before we get off to answer the whole question of why this disparity between what Ellen White wrote and what the Bible wrote on slavery, are you feeling comfortable that it is a very easy thing to know how to relate to the laws of the land when the laws of the land are different from what God says. It's very easy. It's black and white. Or is it not very easy? It's not easy. Yeah, it's not easy. No, but it seems that it all conflicts with the principles of God's government. We talked earlier about the law, about the law of God's government and the law that we abide by. And if we were to go back to those principles, none of this makes sense. Oh, but does it? Can you give me an example why those principles cause this not to make sense? Because I think if you go back to the principles, it actually clarifies and puts it all into light and it actually makes perfect sense. Because if I'm a slave owner, then I'm really in the wrong position. I should not really have slaves. Okay. Everyone is free under God's government. Well, take thou shalt not kill. But God assisted the Israelites in killing the people when they went into the land of Canaan. That wasn't the original plan that she was saying that God had the hornets and the... the it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And not only did God assist them, he gave them instructions to wipe them all out including the women and the children. Because if we understand the principles, it makes perfect sense. Because God wants as little terror, as little killing, as little post-traumatic stress, as few people as possible to actually be, suffer the traumas of war. And since they insisted on doing it that way, he says, then do it in one generation, get it over with, and for the next 4,000 years, we will have peace in the Middle East, and generation after generation will grow up without war and without conflict. <laughs> yeah. But they didn't do that either, and we've continued to have war and conflict. 
So every generation is being messed up. But God's plan was, if, if that's the way you're going to do it, then get it done. If you want an example for that, just look at the history of the United States. What did we do to the American Indians? We wiped them out. Whole tribes wiped them out. Now, I'm not saying that was righteous and healthy, but you notice we don't have an ongoing civil war in this country. That was the point. So what about this issue of slavery? Was there some aspect of culture that was different at the time the Bible writers were writing than when Ellen White was writing that would explain the difference? Yes. The Israelites were in slavery because they did not follow God. Well, we're not talking about them being slaves in Egypt now. We're talking about after they were set free that they had slaves themselves. Yeah. That's the point. That's why in the Jubilee years under the government of Israel, the Israelites would have to set their slaves free every 49 years. And some of them were actual uh, Jews themselves. Although they were told not to have Jewish slaves. But at the Jubilee year, wasn't it true that a slave could choose to be permanently life slave and they would put a ring in their ear? So if you're wearing earrings, whose slave are you? <laughs> That's how they did it. They go to the doorpost and they put a ring in the ear. And then that was for, from now on, any Jubilees that came around, you're, you're not going to be set free. You've, you've chosen to be permanently a slave. Is it, isn't that part of the system? Yeah, it was. Why did God put that system in? Culture, culture. Think in the day of Rome. My understanding statistically is about one in ten individuals living in the empire of Rome was a citizen of Rome. Nine out of ten were non-citizens. Many were slaves. I don't know, I don't know the exact number, but many of the individuals living in Rome were slaves. Well, what do you think have happened to the slaves? If on some day there's an edict that goes forth and all the slaves are now set free, what would have happened in Rome? What happened in America? Yeah. Exactly. What, ha- what would have happened? It was actually different because it's not the same what happened in America. I'm going to tell you it would be much, much worse and much more magnified in Rome than what happened in America. What would have happened, though, in Rome, do you think? Do you think the slaves would have been as well fed, clothed, sheltered? Might, might many of them ended up, might there have been anarchy, violence? Um, might, the whole, might there have been more crime, uh, prostitution, more exploitation of the innocent? Might more of the slaves themselves been harmed and injured if slavery was just wiped out at that moment in human history? Because there was no structure to provide. How, how, and, and slaves were often like household members, stewards. Not all. There were many, they were abused. The gladiators were slaves and they were abused and put in the pits and exploited. But many of them were like family members and they were cared for. What would have happened to the gospel in the first century had the Christians came out to oppose slavery and seek to overthrow the laws regarding slavery in the empire of Rome in the first century? What would have happened to the gospel if the Christians came out with that agenda? Do you think the gospel would have gone forward? The power struggle, she said. Do you think it would have brought down the heat of the government much more fast? And what would they have been fighting over at that point? Because these people are loving and kind and gracious and, 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 and teaching godly principles? Or would it have gone into a power and political struggle? Would, would the gospel have been perverted much sooner if they would have done that and corrupted? Was Christianity as an organization and a religion in a different place in the 19th century that was in the 1st century? So was there a threat to the destruction of Christianity in the 19th century by opposing slavery? I don't think so. I don't think Christianity was... In fact, it was an advancement of the principles and morals of Christianity for Christians to take this position, but maybe not so in the first century. Do you think the church can achieve God's purposes on earth by working through state institutions? No. No. Why or why not? Thank you. State systems always, always use coercive coercive methods. Even when it is a good program, 
they will ultimately come in and they will use coercion. You will tax, and if you don't pay your tax, you'll be imprisoned. And the taxes will be used. And maybe it's a program that you support charitably. Like many of you support the Samaritan Center over here and give to the Samaritan Center and give um, not only clothing, but maybe money. And, it, and it's used to help the homeless and help people of less fortune and the poor and so forth. And you, and you support that charitably. But if the government, if we go through the government and the government taxes you and takes your money to do it, different outcomes happen. And ultimately, one of the problems that I have Sinful human governments never use God's methods. They never do. And one of the problems I have is when you begin doing that, ultimately, the people running the programs will be many unconverted, self-centered people, and the programs become corrupt. And they become used for political gain and personal advancement, not for the healing of the hearts and minds of people. Can we now ask this question? Can we run human governments by practicing God's methods? Can you run an earthly human government? Let me, let me, let me make it more precise. Can you run a sinful earthly human government by practicing God's methods? Yes. I don't think so. Is that your question? No. <laughs> Notice the, the, the key element is sinful human government. by God's methods of truth presented in love, leaving everyone free and never using coercion. Will that work on earth with sinful human beings? You can make it better. You're never going to achieve the, the perfect model. So will truth, love, and freedom without coercive pressure work in a world populated by people who reject truth and who value selfishness and the exploitation of others. We'll going to them kindly, truthfully, and say, this is really harmful. You, you drug dealer on the corner. You're exploiting the children, and it's harmful. And we, and, and we want to present the truth about what, how bad that is. But we're going to leave you perfectly free to make up your mind and do what you want. And there's no course of pressure brought to bear at all. Is that going to stop the drug dealers and the sex traffickers? And the, is it going to put an end to that? No. It will not work. And communism and socialism are kind of, the ideas of them are fine, where, you know, everybody's kind of sharing and the same and all, but they're ultimately, the, the great idea doesn't work here for that very reason, because even within those systems, people use them for their own. This is why the Bible says God permits the earthly governments to punish, not because it's God's perfect world and perfect design. The sinful world is not his perfect world and perfect design. In heaven, we will not be safe and secure for all eternity in heaven and a new earth because there's an angel with a flaming sword on every corner policing things. That's not why. It will be because it will be populated only by people who have been renewed in the inner man to have God's eternal law of love as their primary system of function. We would rather die as individuals than to ever exploit another person. That's why we'll be safe. And you think about people that absolutely love you more than they love themselves, there is no law against this. But on earth today, it's not going to work. Now, the, the gospel going forth converts hearts, that works, but running human governments will never work this way. Because the human governments are populated, and the populations are people who reject those methods and have solidified themselves in Satan's ways transfer the argument to our church or is it too too dangerous well so can can a church be successful running itself with god's principles as long as the church is a movement of people helping people and people loving people and the church does not become an institution which needs to protect its Assets, name, and properties. Once it becomes an institution that needs to protect itself, it will sacrifice and hurt its members to protect itself. So a priest that's molesting a child, we can't let the system, the, uh, the, the public find out because it will hurt our reputation. So let's move the priest to a different parish quietly and protect the institution from the bad publicity. 
We have a, a school teacher in our local uh, Christian denomination school who divorces her husband without marital sexual infidelity. We can't have this violation of our standards on marriage, so we need to fire her from her job. It doesn't matter that he was beating her every day. That's, that's irrelevant. We should fire her to hold up the standards because we don't want to lower the standards, you see. So when we have institutionalism becoming to the forefront that we must protect the institution, then we sacrifice members and hurt individuals. But when we church functions as a body of people, a movement that has a mission to bring people the true knowledge of God and practice his methods, then there's a unity and a harmony. And, and yes, we can do it that way. It's a good question. That's a brilliant question. Very well answered. <laughs> Thank you. Tuesday's lesson, it asks us to read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it to you out of the NIV. It says, Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and the wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of, a, of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your, you and your prayers, your prayers. So, how is what is said here relevant to marriage in society today? The first sentence in the translation I'm reading from says, in the same way, you wives. Okay? That means you're going back and referencing what was in chapter 2. So what was in chapter 2? Christ. Christ and his giving of himself. Okay? In the same way Christ gave of himself. We are to give for others. Okay? And it, and it has on both sides of that equation. So if you take that, in the same Philippians, Christ did not think equality with God, something to be grasped, but humble himself in the form of a servant all the way down to the cross. So wives, recognize that. You're to humble yourself for your husbands, just like that. And give up your seat on a lifeboat. Yep. That's right. We, we, so society's had it backwards. When the ship's going down, the men should have been getting on and the wives should have been staying behind. If, if we apply this, right? Yeah. Like Christ did. Christ, Christ wouldn't have uh, taken the seat on the lifeboat. He'd give it to us. And wives, you're supposed to be like Christ with your husbands. Now, come on, what's going on here? Verse 7 and 8 also. So this is about love. This is about how, what is true love. True love is giving of yourself for others. So do we hear much about this in Christianity today, about the importance of wives submitting to their husbands? Do we hear about this in various... Did, did this come up at the General Conference uh, in 2015? In the ordination of women. And this was an argument, the headship argument, that the husband is the head, and, and they're male, and, and their wives are to submit. And, then, and in the church, that the, 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 the example of the, of the groom and the bride and the bride is the church and, and in the church therefore the groom is the head and so therefore the wife we can't have ordination of women the husbands are supposed to love the wives like Christ loved the church that's right sacrificing themselves for them so they can be submissive to him <laughs> because your selfish heart would never be submissive and so once he reveals the love of Christ then you will have a new heart so you can submit like you should what are you thinking you see, this argument I'm making, hopefully you can tell, I'm not serious. <laughs> because it's a misapplication of what Peter's focus is here. Peter's focus is not about establishing a hierarchical command structure within the family. In, it, Peter's concern um, is not about defining lines of authority. In fact, in Peter's day, was there already a well-established and accepted societal hierarchy within families, whether those are pagan families, Jewish families, or Christian families, was there already a well-established societal hierarchy? Yes. And what was that hierarchy? Patriarchal. Patriarchal. Well-established across all religious groups. Peter is not establishing a hierarchical hierarchy. He's understanding that this is the hierarchy, and within that hierarchy, he's advocating for a completely different issue. And what is the issue he's advocating here? Peter is advocating about the salvation of husband and wife. 
about a wife who's come to the knowledge of Christ, but the husband hasn't come to the knowledge of Christ, and how is the best method for you as a woman to reach your husband in a system in which he is the patriarchal head? How do you reach him? How do you convert him? How do you bring him over? This is Peter's focus. And he's saying the same thing that won you was not God using his power and exercising his authority to command you with threats. That didn't win your heart. What won your heart is the self-sacrificial love of Christ that won you. And he's saying, do you want to win that hierarchical leader in your home? Then show him that love. And then when you win him and he gives his heart to Christ, then he will love you like that. That's what this is about. It's about reaching somebody. So here is the same passage from the remedy. In the same way, wives, by your conduct, actively seek to reveal God's true character to your husbands, so that even if they don't believe the scriptures, they may be won over by your humble, loving service when they see genuine, selfless love in action. The beauty that emanates from God cannot be revealed in outward trappings such as hairstyle, jewelry, or designer clothes. So don't get tricked into making your external appearance the main concern. Notice, it's not that it's not a concern. It's not the main concern. Okay? Instead, real godly beauty is found in a heart, mind, and character that has been healed to be like Christ, gentle and loving, and is of the highest worth in God's sight. This is how the holy women of the past who trusted God made themselves beautiful. They lovingly sought the godly best for their husbands, like Sarah, who graciously supported Abraham and called him my hero and leader. You are truly heirs of Sarah if you give of yourself in love to build up your husband and not give in to fear and selfishness. If you are a husband, then be sure to always consider the needs of your wife and treat her with love, sacrificing yourself for her good. Respect her as a weaker partner, but remember her equality to you as an heir of God's gracious gift of life. Do this so that you may experience the unity of love and nothing will then interfere with your conversations with God. This is what I think is going on here. And much of Christianity, because they're still operating at level four, rules, law, checklists, are wanting a codification. And they're wanting command structures. And they're wanting this order. And they take these things and miss the point of what Peter's trying to say. He's not establishing family hierarchy. He's operating within an understood social hierarchy and trying to say, here's how we bring the love of Christ to bear to convert the husband who doesn't know Christ. Yes? What do you think he meant by weaker partner? Physically. I think it's primarily physically. I think it's very clear across the landscape. Now, while there are some men who are weaker than some women across the landscape, most women are weaker physically than men. And that's what I think he means. Wednesday's lesson talks about, uh, well, first, first paragraph in Wednesday's lesson. It says, Paul addresses some of the issues raised in 1 Peter 2, 11 uh, through 3, 7 in several places. What he says is remarkable remarkably consistent what is found in 1 Peter. For example, like Peter, Paul urges his readers to be subject to the governing authorities. Rulers are appointed by God and are a terror to the evil work, works, not good. What does it mean that rulers are appointed by God? That, that is, a, you know, I think that's a statement from the lesson. Does it mean that, God, that if somebody is ruling, somebody's in leadership, whether it's in the government, president, whether it's a king and a monarchy, whether it is a, a church pastor, can we have confidence if they're in leadership, God has put them there? <laughs> Why, Hitler? Thank you, yes. Was Nero chosen by God? Was Hitler chosen by God? How about the little horn power? The little horn power who ends up in leadership, and what's the Bible say the little horn power does? The little horn power not only opposes God, but gets its authority from? The Bible makes it clear. The dragon. Not from God. So should we say that God set up the little horn power? God did not set up the little horn power. What about this? Even in ancient Israel when they're kings. This is Hosea chapter three, chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. But Israel has rejected what is good, an enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. This is God speaking through Hosea, that they're setting up their kings without my consent. I didn't set them up. Did, we need, did you need that text to make you feel comfortable with that? Or, or, or could you look at human history and reason out that some of these despots that ended up on the throne, God didn't put them there? 
So what is God's role? How do they get into power if God isn't the one doing it? Understand God's laws and how he works. God's laws are sovereign in the universe, and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built. And one of those laws is the law of liberty. And he leaves his people free. God gave Samson strength. Yes. Did God control how Samson used it? No. Samson was free to misuse that strength. God gave Solomon wisdom. Did God control the choices Solomon made? No. And he made some terrible choices. So here's out of Prophets and Kings, page 279. The closing years of the ill-fated kingdom of Israel were marked with violence and bloodshed, such as has never been witnessed even in the worst periods of strife and unrest under the house of Ahab. For two centuries and more, the rulers of the ten tribes had been sowing the wind, and now they were reaping the whirlwind. Did you know that law, one of God's laws was just described here? Sowing and reaping. The law of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. It's a law. It's a design protocol. And they were sowing, now they're reaping. And the, and the and Galatians make this clear. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature will reap destruction. That's biblical. It's a design law. If you harden your heart and, and into your character sow the seeds of selfishness and hate and envy and solidify yourself, this you from your own sowing will destroy your own soul. God doesn't have to do that to you. It's design law. Keep going. King after king was assassinated to make way for other others ambitious to rule. They have set up kings, the Lord declares of these godless usurpers, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Every principle of justice was set aside. Those who should have stood before the nations of earth as the depositories of divine grace dealt treacherously against the Lord and with one another. Prophets and Kings 279. Do you see that not all people in positions of authority were put there by God? That's including in the church. I remember seven years ago now. Seven years ago now when we had some discussions over with some leadership here, one of the um, pastors said to me that I should respect the senior pastor because he was appointed by God. And since he was God's anointed, I couldn't question what he said. That's what I was told. I said, well, Caiaphas tried the same on Christ. And the Roman hierarchy tried the same with Martin Luther and all the reformers. Just because someone's in a position of authority, even in the church, and even if it's the church system that you believe God has chosen and blessed, like Caiaphas was the church of Christ's day and he was the high priest, doesn't mean they speak truth. You have been given a mind and individuality and you must weigh the evidence for yourself and come to your own conclusion. Yes, you had a comment? So when you say the word uh, appointed, misleading them, Romans 13.3. Somebody read Romans 13.3 for us. You've got that. For rulers are not to be feared by those who do good, but by those who do evil. Would you like to be unafraid of those in authority? Then do what is good and they will praise you. So is there anywhere around there that talks about God appointed them? Verse 1. Yeah. Everyone must obey state authorities because no authority exists without God's permission. And the existing authorities have been put there by God. Okay, so there you go. God's permission, God's divine principles of liberty, that he permits these things to happen. But we also have the Hosea text where they had kings, and God specifically speaking to Hosea said, I did not put them there. So Paul is not contradicting Hosea. Paul is saying under the landscape of how God works, he permits these things to come so that general order and, and anarchy does not exist. And this is, the, I think, the general principle, not that he selects individuals for, for those things. The people gain comfort in the statement, God is in control. Well, this, this idea that God appoints kings led to the abuse of this divine right of kings. Yeah. That if you were a king, then you were appointed by God and you had divine rights, and those divine rights led to all types of human abuses throughout history. You even had divine blood. Even had divine blood in some cultures, yes. And this was not just Christian cultures. Genghis Khan had the same belief that, and uh, so did the Persian, the Persian emperors. And many of the uh, rulers in the pagan lands believed that the rulers were the sons of the gods and they had divine right to rule. So this idea that God sets up rulers is a corruption, I think, from the prince of this world who wishes he was the one ruling everything. Uh, God does sometimes call people, and he does sometimes choose people. He chose Saul, he chose David. But we also have clear evidence that there are many that he doesn't choose, and they end up in those positions. 
So have we made it absolutely clear today as we come to the end of our lesson on the relationship between God's principles and his laws and what he's instructing in his word and the state and, and now you ha- can walk out of here with a checklist of do's and don'ts? Hopefully not. Hopefully what we've done instead is given you the, stimulated you to begin thinking and reasoning through the principles and understanding that at different times and places and circumstances, the principles of God might cause you to act in different ways based on the exact same principles. And that you want to be a person who understands God, his motives, his purposes, what he's trying to achieve in that setting, and be willing to fulfill that at any cost to self for God's kingdom. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are always true to yourself, that you never violate your own character, your own design, your own principles, what we call your law. But your law does not function like the laws of sinful human beings, a system of rules that you must threaten and punish if we break. We're so thankful you don't run your universe that way. Give us wisdom and discernment as we deal with our own earthly governments that we will be able to represent your kingdom of love and live as citizens who care for our fellow man with, with true regard. Doing, seeking the best for those around us, we pray in your holy name. Amen.